Welcome to the Financial Coconut Podcast Network, the leading personal finance podcast network in Singapore. I'm your host, Reggie, aka your chief financial coconut. Every Thursday, you will finally get to chill with us. Hosted by Andrew, we will be bringing on some of the quirkiest, geekiest, leading voices in the personal finance space to give them ample time to talk about their story, the lessons they have learned over time, and some good advice for all of us. No longer the short and quick stuff. So sit back and chill with TFC. Hello and welcome to Chills with TFC, where we sit down with some of the quirkiest and geekiest minds out there to learn about how they do money and life. I'm your host, Reggie, aka Your Chief Financial Coconut, and recently there's been a lot of discussion around bonds, SSBs, bond funds, all that stuff, maybe because every other thing not doing so well. <laughs> so I am bringing on an old episode, a very old episode in the deep vaults of TFC, where I spent a lot of time to talk to Chun. Chinting from Money Hour is back. This episode was from 2021. Recently, I did an episode with her on First Dips where we evaluated SSB. So check out that episode. But today, today we're going to focus on, once again, how do you look at bonds? Where do they position in your portfolio? Is it an investment style for you? So for all that and more, this is Chills with TFC. Hello and welcome to Chill with TFC, where we sit down with the geekiest and quirkiest minds to learn about how they do money and life. Bonds have been quite a hot topic recently, so we thought this would be a good time to revisit this episode we did with Money Owl back in 2021. How can you get the most out of bonds, regardless of your investment style? Let's find out. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi everyone, hi Reggie, thanks for having me on the show. You know, when, when we're talking about investing, a lot of people will look at stocks, mm. right? But today we, we want to spend a lot more time to talk about bonds, right? Because it's the, uh, the not-so-sexy one, right? For, for like a better way to put it. <laughs> you know? well, bonds, are, bonds are my first love, actually, uh, yes, yeah, because yes. of where I came yes. from. And that's yeah. why we are here with you. Help us understand what are bonds. Mm. Is it the same as like loans, like what we understand you know, as retail individuals? So bonds and loans are similar in that they are both borrowings. So meaning that someone lends someone else or an entity a sum of money for a time and then expects to get it back with a certain compensation. But there are some important structural differences, I would say. And I think I would like to divide that into like four differences. First is who borrows. Second is who lends in a bond versus a loan. And third is how you repay, the structure of payment. And fourth is the concept of price. So firstly, who borrows? When it comes to loans, generally speaking, it's individuals. You know, like we borrow buy a house or we borrow a credit yeah. card, etc. Uh, not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and corporates, right? Companies. Of course, governments do sometimes borrow from, say, World Bank or whatever, but let, let's exclude them for now. So loans, individuals, corporates. Bonds, Governments and corporates. 
Then who lends? Who is the lender, right? Who's on the other side? When it's loans, it tends to be from banks. Right? And, uh, but when it comes to bonds, the lender is actually capital markets, right? the capital market participants, or you call them investors. Now, this is important because the source of funds is different. When you issue to the capital market, the market determines whether it wants to lend to you, how much it wants to lend to you, and then the price at which it wants to lend mm. to you. And it's a collective assessment of pricing your risk. So in a sense, you can say it's a market discovery of your creditworthiness. But when you borrow from a bank, yes, the bank will also make that assessment, but the bank has to use its own balance sheet to support it. Now, what do I mean? Because in the government uh, regulations to promote the stability of bank, you cannot lend out all your, your money. Yes, your money yes. right? You need to set aside some capital in order to support potential losses mm. uh, from your book. So what this means is that when you have to set aside capital that cannot be used, it actually becomes costly for bank shareholders. Right? So there is then that difference. So uh, this is really about who lends. Right? So loans are from banks. And I would say that generally speaking, if you're very confident of your position in the market and you have a, a sound business, if you issue a bond, that market discovery process should reward you with Slightly uh, low, rates. lower rates. That, that's what uh, oh. I believe. So, but there is uh, because of regulations of bank capital and all that. Uh, in Europe, corporates tend to borrow more from banks, and say in US, they tend to issue bonds rather than borrow from banks. So there are structural differences here. Yeah. So who borrows and who lends? Those are the differences. Now, how you repay is also different from how we understand it, and this is quite important because when you have a loan, it tends to be a term loan for time and as individuals we are familiar with amortizing loans right you pay some principal and some interest the um, periodic payments are level so so like your monthly mortgage is the same amount but the proportion that goes to its principal and proportion that goes to its interest is different but over time then it falls to uh, zero right you have fully repaid now bonds are not like that so bonds well, what you lend at the beginning, you repay at the end, and in between you pay coupon. Right? Usually semi-annually, meaning uh, every six months, but sometimes annually. So this is the payment structure that is quite different, and it does affect the way that it's priced because it depends on when you're buying the bond. Right? You have a different risk because your risk is at the back. So the interesting thing, though, is that you can turn a loan into a security like a bond through a process called securitization. And this is, again, what happens uh, in mortgage-backed securities. So you take basically, all, let's say, 100 mortgages and they package into a bond. And mm. then you have a certain cash flow and, and all that that you pass on. So, but anyway, generally speaking, uh, nowadays we tend to be a little bit less you know, into this structural thing. So a bond has that coupon and then a big principle at the end, generally speaking, for vanilla bonds. Now, finally, this concept of price. How do you price a loan? When you think about a price of a loan, actually, it, most of the time, you're like, huh, what are you talking about? You're talking about interest rate, right? So you say mortgage rate is what? Or you say your company, you're borrowing, you know, you had to borrow 10% or 3% or what? So this is what it is. It's basically an interest rate. But when it comes to bonds, the concept is basically yield. Right? Yield uh, and the inverse of yield is uh, price. But... Yield, um, let me just quickly explain, it's not really the same as an in interest rate or the coupon that you get, which I, which I described just now. So let's just say that you bought a bond and it 
pays once a year coupon, and it's a 1.2% coupon. And the bond is issued at $100 par value, and at the end of one year, you get by $100, right? So in this case, your coupon is 1.2%, and your yield is also 1.2%. Okay. okay? Yes. But let's say you bought the bond not at $100, but you bought at $120. Mm. So you bought higher than par, which you call premium. So you bought $120, at the end of one year, you have gotten $1.20, uh, $1 and then $100. Right. So then what is your uh, you yield? Lost, eh? right. yeah, it's, actually, it's actually lower, right? So it's actually more than 1%, mm. right? because you actually paid more for it. Yeah. So, this is, so what this means is that you can have two bonds of the same maturity that can have a different coupon, but yet the same yield. And this is then in, because of the price. So generally speaking for bonds, when yields go up, the price of the bond has fallen, right? mm. because it's not equivalent to a coupon. And this is where the capital markets come in because you price according to yield and uh, how the, some of these prices are affected is in the buying price of the bond. So a company comes out and says, I'm going to issue this amount of bonds. The market determines where you strike final yield. So if there's a lot of demand, then you tend to be able to issue at a discount. So uh, that's good. That means that markets still have that confidence, confidence in, the in the company. So how, how does that discount then reflect on the price? Oh, so let's say you, you have a par value of, say, 100. So that is the issue price? Is uh, no, that, that is just the value of the bond. It okay. tends to be, they say, 100 or so. So it's issued at like 98.7 cents, for example. Mm. Right? But because at the end, you get back 100. Usually mm. that's how... Mm. It, yeah. So then you do the calculations in between okay. uh, to get the discount rate that will bring all the cash flows to that price of 98.7. And then you know that how that... Uh, what is that you? So if that was a 3.5% bond, it means 3.5% coupon, but because it's issued at 98.7, the yield is higher than 3.5%. Mm, mm. Because at the end of the term, you actually make that... 100. That 100, right? Which is right. about another 1.3% more. That's right. right? Yeah. Uh, 1.3 times more, not 1.3... Yeah, you have to sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, do the it's discounting, yes, the different yes, periods. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. But that's how negative yields come about. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do people make money in a negative <laughs> yield environment? Yeah, we can talk about yeah. that a little yeah. bit more, but how, how do you even sort of operationalize a negative yielding bond, right? So what happens is that it's not that they pay you money for lending them money, like the mm. German government now is having a negative yielding bonds. What they do is that they issue zero coupon bonds. So zero coupon bonds, generally speaking, means that uh, they would, should be issued at a discount. So the 98.7 at the end is 100, and that difference actually, then you make your calculations, has, implies a certain yield. In between, you don't get coupons. So this is a zero coupon bond. Mm. So, but in this case, when a negative building bond, instead of issuing at a discount, and then you get back par, they issue above par, and then you get back 100. Mm. Yeah, so that's how the negative view comes about. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, so essentially, they're not going to give you any money for holding on to the bond through this process because yeah. that's why it's called zero coupon, yeah. right? And then for something that is worth 100 at the end of the time period, they sell you at like 110, 120, something like that. Right? Uh, yes, but, that's right. But isn't that, uh, um, there's a market mechanism behind this, right? How is that 110 or 120 price? Yeah, yeah, okay. So there's a primary market for bonds and a secondary market for bonds. So for the primary market is really when the, in this case, the government will issues and then they will announce auctions and then all the dealers will come and they will buy the bonds <laughs> and because there's a lot of demand, they will bid up the bonds. So this means that for some reason, the 
the confidence, perhaps be it in the banking system or be it in the economy, is so low. Everyone wants to park their money into a very, very safe instruments to the extent that they are willing to lend the German government money and pay to, for the privilege of lending. <laughs> right. yeah, so, so that's uh, how negative yielding bonds come about. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's an interesting, it's an uh, interesting phenomenon. phenomenon, right? Yeah, so, right yeah. so essentially, it means that the guys, they don't want to put their money elsewhere. They're willing mm. to like, you know, fight for giving the money to the government. Yeah, right? That's why the bond get bids up. Yeah. And at the end of the time period, they lose. And then in between... How do, how do the people that participate in between make money then? Also, there's a secondary market where people just really buy and sell bonds. Mm. So this is uh, usually done through institutions. And so it's, it's quite interesting because we can think about why and how do institutions use bonds and how do they profit from bonds or how do they um, think about bonds. Mm. Mm. But like what you rightfully point out, it sounds like this only is an institutional game. Mm. Like only the institutions get access to it. Uh, yes and no, but I'll say that one thing that is very true is that uh, it is largely about institutions. So then how, how do we retail guys participate in the bond space? Mm. So for us, there are two ways, let's say practically speaking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like realistic one. Yeah, like realistic can, one. We actually like, can do it one. Ah, can do it, yeah. yeah, yeah. Without, yeah. without like having to be a Yeah, know, like don't have to bank, register. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, one is to, you can buy some that are listed, right? But most bonds are actually in big denominations of like 250000 uh, Singapore dollars, for okay. example. Or so although they are thousand. listed, that I can buy directly, but the minimal ticket is 250000 Yes, that's right. Okay, unless you're an accredited investor or you have. Yes, 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 uh, there yes. is this, uh, like iFast has this service called Bond Express, but for accredited investors only, mm. where they can buy an odd lot. Lah. So mm. accredited investors have you know, a certain net worth, a certain income, all that. For retail bonds, there have been as well, and some of them are also listed, but there are not many. Right? And uh, the higher quality ones would be the Thermasic bonds and also Astria, which also issued, uh, which is a securitized instrument on underlying of uh, private equity uh, instruments. So they use a bit of that technology of structuring, but this is uh, backed by Thermasic. And so I think people have more confidence in that. So if you look for on CDP, I think there are probably only about eight retail bonds right now. So SIA also has, has a retail bond. I think Fraser's has a, has a retail bond, but not many. Um, the one retail bond that uh, in recent times has not uh, sent this retail bond reputation down is, of course, high flux, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so the problem with bonds for re retail investors is sometimes they are sold as bonds equal safe. Right. And that yeah, yeah that's not, what people say. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so it's equal safe, yes. Yeah, but it's not necessarily so, as you can say, just because something carries the word bonds. Uh, and so in the case of high flux, it was actually a perpetual bond. So a perpetual bond is different from a say a senior unsecured bond. Right. So mm. and it's different than from a subordinated bond. And this is to do with the capital structure of a company. So to understand bonds again, you remember it is actually a borrowing. Now as a company, when you borrow, 
or even as a country when you borrow, you have an obligation to pay the interest. Mm. And as a company, before you pay your shareholders, you have to pay your interest and and your borrowings. Yes, right. It's the same as us, right? We have yes. you no know, when we borrow from bank, we have to pay. Yeah, you, you pay know, your, debt, your debtors yeah. first. That's yes. right. So if anything happens, we sell off our assets. We pay the debtors first, and so. Then bonds in itself, you can have a hierarchy of bonds. The, you can have secured bonds, right? And that means that it's secured on something. So let's say uh, we have the, the mortgage bonds were secured on a pool of mortgages. So the company can collateralize basically their borrowing. Uh, most common is actually a senior unsecured bond. So it depends on the cash flows of the company to pay you. And senior bonds, is where you usually take the bond rating uh, of the of the company rating from. So there are senior bonds, then there are subordinated bonds, and then there are things called perpetual bonds. Now bonds are meant to have a term, right? but when they are perpetual, then it becomes a little bit more like perpetual capital, which is actually more quasi equity. So in the perpetual bonds, you are lower down on the capital structure. What you get a high coupon, so the high flux at six percent coupon. Mm. Right? But what it means is that something happens to high flux, your priority of payment is way down. So it depends okay. on how much net worth there is in the or net equity there is in the company. Uh, how perpetual bonds work usually is that there's a call date, you know, such that you won't always be holding on to a bond at some point, they will call it back and, and, and this is how it works. So I think many retail investors did not understand what a perpetual bond was. The perpetual bond actually lowered down on the capital structure. Mm. And I guess they also felt that, you know, high flux is like a Singapore darling. Oh, la, la, okay, yeah. la, like everybody needs <laughs> to yeah. drink water, right? That's, you know, right. Like. <laughs> That's right. So it's very sad because when bonds are um, sort of misused, right? In the sense, mm. people, and, and they're big, I'm sure they have been sold these things, saying that bonds very safe one, you know? Mm, confirm. But, yeah. I hear this all the time. And then you've got people putting their life savings into yes. this. It's really yes. sad. So generally speaking, it's very hard for uh, retail investors to access a basket of bonds. Mm. And at Money Hour, we feel that bonds, uh, like equities, we should be globally diversified. And we want bonds to be uh, really performing their function of being the safer asset. Right? Mm. So how, how, do, how do bonds actually feature in this whole return and yes. risk spectrum? Yes. Maybe we can talk a bit about that. Now, right? share with yeah. us, yes. yes. <laughs> Yeah. I want to know, yes. Yeah. So, bonds are uh, return more than cash, but are more volatile than cash. So, a little bit riskier than cash. Mm. But they return lower than equities and are less volatile than equities. So, okay. this is roughly mm, where they mm, are. Mm, mm. So, because otherwise, if it's just for safety, right, then why don't you use cash? Because mm. cash don't return you anything. Like yeah, yeah. nowadays, yeah. <laughs> especially nowadays, small cash. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Every bank is cutting their, you know, uh, fixed D rates and everything. Right? That's right. So. And why is that? Let's say compare equities. Why is that so? Remember, I said it's higher up in the capital structure. Mm. So it means, in return for the safety of being paid first before the shareholders, you don't get any upside. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So the best you can get in a bond is your principal back and whatever coupon uh, or yield on the, mm. on the bond. Mm. Right? Uh, in, as, as a bondholder directly. I'm not talking about the trading of bonds yet and all that. Yes. Yeah. So return is lower than equities, higher than cash. Volatility is lower, actually much lower uh, than equities, but higher than cash. So I was just looking at some data. So let's say our uh, the US dollar version of our dimensional global core equity fund, which we have in our portfolios, over a 10-year period, returned about 8.9% uh, per annum wow. total return. That's pretty yeah. high. But the standard deviation, uh. which is volatility, yes. is 14.7%. Uh, oh, okay. okay. So okay. how do you understand this is that uh, within one standard deviation, it means that 68% of the time, uh, you will be, say, that average return minus 14.7% or plus 14.7%. So, so you have that variability, right? So that's usually a measure of risk, volatility. So 8.9 return versus 14.7 standard deviation. Now, if you look at, say, the uh, Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate Bond Index, that's US dollar hedge, it returns around slightly less than half over 10 years, 4.2%. But the volatility is only 2.6%. Oh, yeah. So, okay, so okay. that's the that's the difference because it's so much less volatile, mm. and I don't think I need to talk about cash. Like price share of only one percent and volatility <laughs> like zero point whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then uh, the thing is, but why doesn't anyone just invest in equities? Mm. Right? It's because of this volatility. Yes. Then you say, should I then maximize risk adjusted return? So risk adjusted return, uh, you will hear a lot of fund managers say that you know return versus really sharp ratios and all mm. that, right? This boils down to whether four percent is good enough for you. Mm. Right? Over the long term, does it does it beat inflation? Does it meet your needs? Does, after inflation, does it meet your uh, you know the, your life needs that I was talking about? Is it sufficient returns for you? And for most people, it probably would not be because we want to increase. We have so many needs, right? That we need to save <laughs> for. Yes. Yeah. So this is the nuance there. That yes, equities will give a higher return, but we don't all go for equities. Mm. And just now we talked about how institutions use bonds, right? And what we refer to that about institutions buying a lot of bonds. And this is one of the things about institutional investors, say like, you know, the foundation that that came from, that you, institutional investors, uh, very seldom have I seen a mandate that is 100% equities. <laughs> like, because it is always about the risk appetite. Mm. And because bonds have this lower volatility, they have that function of dampening volatility of the whole portfolio return, but better than cash, because mm. cash will give zero, but this one will give a little bit. And there's also some negative correlation, not always, some negative correlation uh, between bonds and equities. Because when times are stressed, uh, investors tend to run to safety, or they, they just want to you know, get a little bit of return but not zero, so they will then bid up all the prices of the bonds. Mm. So that correlation, but not, not always perfect, helps in the, the whole portfolio uh, volatility. Mm. Essentially, when the stock market is shaking, then the bond market will come, and, come in and That's help right. you stabilise your portfolio. Yeah. And this is going to do with the business cycle and all that. Mm. So all institutional investors have a, a risk appetite and usually it's stated down in a policy, what you call an IPS or a, a investment policy statement. And it's not that different from how we advise our, our retail clients. It's around three things. It's your need 
ability and willingness to take risk. Mm. Your need to take risk is actually what return you require. So if you are like a foundation, you might have a spending rule. You might have, say, I, I'm looking for how much return from this because I need to spend it on, on this and that. Uh, so like endowments, for, for example, they have this uh, required return. So for us, it is like, how much return do you need in order to retire, right? So that's the need to take risk. If the need is very low, then... Uh, don't, then why you need the fluctuation, right? Then the other is your ability. So this ability for us as individuals is the time horizon. Because over time, we know that the stock market will go up, but then you can ride out the volatility. But if you only have two years left, and say, say, say it was 2006, Just right? say that year uh, is your then, year. Correct. And then you needed to take out some, like some, some people in the US, they needed to convert their pension into annuity. In 2008, well, then it was down by 50%. So two years is means you have very, very low ability to take risk. For institutions, is to do with, you know, are these surplus funds, are these uh, this working capital that I need, or is it really, uh, what, what can I do with this, this uh, amount of money? Do I, do I need it at all? And also the cash flow management. And the last is your willingness to take risk, your tolerance. Mm. Right? So if you tend to be, say, a... Uh, government-linked body or something, <laughs> like when, <laughs> you might not want to, you know, expose yourself to a lot of questions if, if, uh, if the... Yeah, like this year do very well, down, next yeah. year why so bad? Yeah. Like that, do right, very well, so. okay, it's always the... <laughs> 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 yeah. So if you see, let's say our GIC, mm. right, we have, there's a reference portfolio, it's not really a bench, but the reference portfolio uh, for the long-term investment, 65% equities and 35% bonds. So this is an asset allocation. So what happens then is all your risk appetite translates then into a, an asset allocation. And the bonds are staple in this asset allocation. Mm. Mm. Okay, so then, like just now you point out, right, fundamentally the standard deviation is the risk factor, you know, in this, in this whole thing. And when, when people go into bonds, essentially, you want to get something that's lower SD, like lower standard mm. deviation, and then, you know, exchange that upside for, for the stability, yeah. right? For, yeah. Yeah, for like a better way to put it, that is what it is. Yeah. Then from a bond perspective, right, mm. like um, from what I understand, it's like there is the, the whole like, grading process mm -hmm. like, like you rate you rate the bonds mm -hmm. right so how do they rate the bonds ah, and, okay. and at what point do they go from like you know uh, investment grade to like junk grade okay so there are three rating agencies uh, only S three yeah uh, there are more but okay, the, the sort the of reliable respected ones big tree big tree big tree yes uh, S&P or Standard & Poor's Moody's and uh, Fitch ratings right so there are a few others and then China has one and all that. But the two among the three that are bigger is S&P and, and Moody's. So they have a scale that goes from triple A down to D. What mm. do these grades reflect? They reflect ultimately your ability to meet your obligations. Mm. Yeah, and, mm. and the ability to meet obligations actually... I'm, I'm just wondering whether I should say ability because there's actually two main components. It's your ability to pay and your willingness to pay. Yes, yeah. fair. Because mm. some companies are very chaukan. They, they can pay, but they don't want to pay. Mm. Right? And, and this actually happens. Or some countries even. You know, there are some countries that are serial defaulters, you know, like Argentina. Argentina. <laughs> but people still can buy, right? Yeah, yeah. And all that. So this is roughly what happens. And how do rating agencies rate these bonds? They have a sort of set of metrics 
that has to do with leverage, so how much debt you have, uh, but a lot of cash flow things, how much interest coverage you have, how many years can you continue paying, how many maturities you have, and then whether you can refinance them. If you have some extraordinary support, because you are a government-linked company and all that, then you might get an uplift. Right? <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Extraordinary. <laughs> you special kid. You are a special kid. Nah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, I remember the last time we had Neptune Orient Lines. So, mm. NOL, uh, actually on the metrics, not, not looking so good, and also profitability and all that, but because they were uh, think to market portfolio company, so I think the, the investors also gave them that. Mm, uplift mm. and I think I believe the ratings also benefited in Singapore you may not find that these ratings are common right so what it means the reason is because when you go out to issue bonds you want to use the rating to give a handle to your investors so that the investors will price you in accordance with this rating service so there is inherent there a little bit of conflict of interest, right? And this is what happened during the 08 crisis as well. So I want to issue the bond and I pay you to make the rating on me. Mm, so right? you give me a better rating. Yeah, and that I, I mean, okay, yeah. So, so obviously, so there's actually lawsuits filed over yes, these things yes. and all that, right? The, there's that uh, conflict of interest inherent there uh, in the in this rating. But generally speaking, they look at certain uh, credit metrics. Mm. I think besides the problem of the conflict of interest, the issue with, which, which actually put the credibility of the rating agencies into doubt when the credit crisis hit, um, or, or the financial crisis hit, is really that the rating agencies get it wrong, mm. or they got it wrong, especially during the crisis. I still remember in 07, uh, and I kept that, that rating <laughs> report for a while, there was a bunch of bond insurers in the US and their names like MBIA, MBAC, Fiji. And what they did was they guaranteed bonds. And they, they were given a triple A rating as late as October 2007. But they couldn't fulfill and they dropped to triple C's and all that like very, very quickly. So this is really like what, what's happening there, right? So there's a bit of um, groupthink and all that. But you also think about how would the rating agency know when your interest coverage is down or that. It's after the fact, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after you report news. Yeah, usually it's report some news and, and, and I guess in the US there's more uh, transparency so it's more common reporting. Yes. Right? So, you say, oh, the, the results. Then usually after the results the credit analyst will do something. I mean, all of us will also be watching and, and looking and then there'll be a downgrade or maybe an outlook will be issued. But then it's sort of slow, right? So rating agencies are, are therefore be naturally behind the curve because it's not fair to their client for them to you know, act for no reason, right? It's a, yeah. Of course, sometimes it's many macro factors affecting that particular outlook. So for mm. during COVID, I guess uh, many companies would have had some um, issues with their ratings. So there is actually an alternative, right, which is to use market prices. So... For uh, Money Hour, this speaks to us because generally speaking, we believe in the power of the markets, the efficiency of the markets. And bond markets are large and for uh, starting actually with, with treasuries and they are, um, they price, right? So they price the collective and aggregate expectations and all the information available of, of all the participants in the market. So it is possible to look at where a bond is trading and 
to then say what does that imply for its credit worthiness. Mm. Yeah. So for a government bond, it trades at a certain yield. So at a certain maturity, it might trade, say, uh, let's say US 10-year bond yield is about just over 1%, 1.1%. Now, if you are rated lower than the US government, as most corporates would be, if not all, uh, <laughs> and then you will have a credit spread. Yes. Yeah, you need to pay more, la, right? Uh, because uh, uh. you are not as... It would be pretty worthy. amazing if you are graded higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, generally speaking, yes. generally speaking, if you, uh, you, you don't tend to be rated higher than your government, but it has happened before uh, where the, let's say, was it Petrobras or something where you are rated higher than your uh, government because uh, you have more cash flow coming from uh, the outside your country than your government has. <laughs> so it does happen. Yeah. But, but generally speaking, yeah, so this, this is what you call a credit spread. So the wider the credit spread means that the more compensation or the higher your yield is after minusing off the government yield. So you can look at then when the bonds are trading. Also remember I told you the prices and it's also implied yield. And then you can work back that credit spread to see, oh, is this bond actually trading at a triple B or is it actually trading at a double A? So in, if, you are, if you then think that actually the market, you should trust market prices more, then you should take your actions actually based on that. Yeah. And during the crisis uh, in 2008, uh, at one point we saw uh, Lehman was still being rated uh, A or A+. Plus, and it was trading at the kind of low triple B. Yeah, then it jumped to default. Yeah. So 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 that's and there's a way of like looking at oh, you know, there's some is there something that someone knows or someone's expecting in the markets. Mm. Our dimensional funds also work like that. So they don't just wait for the rating agencies, they look at uh, where what is the implied credit worthiness that the markets are telling them mm. right? and then they take the actions accordingly. Ah, mm. So you're using price discovery to then decide how how secure these bonds are yeah. essentially. Basically price right? to, because to the tell market you will tell you right, That's right. Like, oh this, yeah. this is getting bidded up then you, you know something's yeah. going on That's here. Right. Okay so then one last question okay so all that being said, now I think I, I get a better understanding of bonds. I know there's so much more to talk. I think we, we can see, you know, come back again, right? We'll, we'll talk again. But then where does bonds sit in one's overall portfolio then? Generally speaking, we will not depend on bonds to make you money, mm. right? And where it makes you money is actually in equities, yeah. So there's a very fundamental uh, economic system reason for this. Remember I said bonds, no upside, right? Uh, but equities is where all when the enterprise of the world and you grow your products and you have production and all this is where uh, you are participating in the economic activity of the world uh, beyond just supplying bond capital. So uh, we would say make your money in equities. Yes. But because not all of us can take that roller coaster, right? Yes. Yeah. Then if you press the button when you're on the roller coaster, you fall off, you die, right? Uh. Figuratively, <laughs> figuratively speaking, thankfully yeah. roller coasters don't have because you can say all you want, but um, it's not easy to stay invested. Yes. Your advisor should help you. That's why we are a bionic advisor. Your advisor, who is not a robot, would, can advise you, please remember, stay invested. But you may not have the risk tolerance. In which case, it's better for you to say not have a 100% equities portfolio, even if you are very young. Because if you are going to press that button, then rather you be in a, say, 60% equities with 40% bonds. You still get good returns. That's sufficient. But 
in a way, with the bonds helping you to stay invested by the effect of the portfolio. There's a second uh, use of, of bonds in a portfolio, which is actually for income. That means to actually clip the coupons and to get some kind of uh, income distribution, right? So even institutions do that, you know, so including our like GSEs and all that, they give the government some is realised income and some is... Uh, now, of course, this is really more when you need to withdraw and the corollary to it would be like dividends, stocks, right? But of course, the, the risk is lower uh, for, for bonds. And this is this is one use of bonds. Uh, unfortunately, because of the interest environment now, uh, this coupon don't tend to be very high. Lah. You know, so it will, it will, it has been coming down. So actually, even for distribution, there are techniques that we can uh, use, touch that we use. Uh, if you need a certain income amount, you can actually also withdraw from your, say, equities portfolio certain percentage. So some of it can be funded by bonds and some of it a withdrawal from your other investments. Yeah. So, but I think that's probably a topic for another day about how. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. To redraw. Thank you for tuning in with Chills with TFC. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hey, give you a quick tip. There are a lot of things that we have recorded long, long ago. It's been in our vault for like two or three years. So yeah, it's all on your favourite podcast feed. What you could do is always scroll all the way up. Alternatively, you can actually look at the website. So the website has a very organised every episode right up, blah, blah, blah. That would be much easier. Or if not... Some people are using their favourite podcast feed these days as a search engine. So you could always just search bonds, the financial coconut, stocks, the financial coconut, investing, the financial coconut, whatever you want. Just search the name and simply include the financial coconut at the back, right? You should be able to dig through all the library just with this simple search strategy. And if anything is not being answered, Come to our community Telegram group and we will answer it. Okay, sometime down in the in different episodes. And then last thing, last thing for all of you, if you have not followed our YouTube channel, you should because we have relaunched our YouTube channel with new shows every day. Something will go out on our YouTube channel. So yes, follow our YouTube channel. And with that, I will see you next time. Probably tomorrow or so, right? <laughs> every day, every day something is going out. You should feel very proud, huh? <laughs> <laughs>